A quick just reminder from last week of when we talked about this definition of discipleship, it is an intentional mentoring, shepherding relationship that fosters spiritual growth through biblical instruction, encouragement, accountability, and mentoring in community with the express purpose of reproducing other spiritual mentors, leaders that will carry forth the faith and train people to put God on display to the hurting world around us. That's what discipleship is. That's what we want to be about here. And these community things that we're talking about, whether it's in India working with Dawa or whether it's here in Jacksonville, we want to be about those things that represent Christ well. Now, today we're looking at an intro to Hebrews. It's really important for us because, again, as Westerners, a lot of times when we read the Scriptures, we read through our lens. And if you read Hebrews with just a lens of, it, it being written to one group of people, it's going to mess you up, mess you up theologically. Because it's written to three different types of people. And it's really important that as we work through it, you understand that, that there's going to be times that, it, and in fact, most of the time, it's written to this one group, which is Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians that have never seen Jesus. But they are Jewish believers somewhere, some people believe in and around Rome or in Italy, over in that part of the world. So this is Jewish believers who grew up with a history in their family, in their lineage of temple worship, tabernacle worship, of, of sacrifice. See, you and I never experienced that. We, we've never had a sacrifice in our life like they had to do. Every year, you know what today is? It's Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. Every year for the Jewish family before Christ came and, and brought a new covenant, part of the way they showed God that they had faith was they would bring a lamb every year to the temple or to the tabernacle, to the priest. He would examine it. If it was perfect, then he would, the father would put his hand on that lamb, would transfer symbolically the sins to that lamb, the priest would slit the throat, take the blood and sprinkle it on the father and on the altar, symbolizing that the sins had been forgiven. Now, was it that sacrifice that forgave the sins or was it God's mercy that forgave the sins? So you see, the Jew was never saved by his acts. A Jew understood it was God's mercy and it was God's grace that saved him. Not the sacrifice. The sacrifice was the way he was obedient to what God called him to do. See, I never really understood that. And when you read the New Testament sometimes, you think, you know, the, the, the Jewish people, they're going to their sacrifice and all they believe in is works. No, that's what they understood for thousands of years. And isn't it interesting that God gave a period of time of 40 years from when Jesus was crucified till he destroyed the temple. 40 years, a period of transition for them to really grasp it. And then in 70 AD, phew, he wiped it away. The temple was no more. They didn't sacrifice anymore. And the ones who didn't buy into Messiah were sitting there scratching their heads going, what do we do? How do we get rid of our sin? 
You ask a Jew today, how does he get rid of his sin? They don't sacrifice. But that's what they did for a thousand years. And so these believers had bought into the fact that Jesus was Messiah. There was a new covenant. But what was happening was their Beitav, their house of the Father, their community was saying, no, <laughs> how are you disregarding the covenant for a thousand years that we've been following? And so they were shunning them out of the community. Now, we don't really understand that because we're so individualistic in our culture. We don't understand that in a, in a community, they got protection. They're in Rome. They're in Italy. They're over there where the Romans are still involved. And for them to be standing as followers of the way, followers of the Nazarene, put their lives in jeopardy, and they had no encouragement from their family because these believers, because they were buying into the new covenant, was put out of that community. And so this letter is written to them primarily to encourage them because what they were wanting to do is conflate some of their old rituals and temple worship with the new covenant. And so the writer, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, was writing them to say, no, don't do that. Christ is supreme. Christ is supreme to Moses. He's supreme to Aaron. He's supreme to Joshua. He's supreme to the old covenant. He's supreme to all these things that, that this writer lays out here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the first audience. Guys, if you miss the audience, it really gets confusing because then you start thinking you can lose your salvation because there's hard passages in here that you're going to look at and you're going to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. It says here that if you do this, but he's not talking to this first group when he says those things. It's a warning to people. This first group was all in. And you go, wait a minute, if they're all in, why are they, why are they wanting to go back to Judaism? Let me ask you a question. Was King David all in? Was he all in with God? Yes. Most of the time. King David, when, when God was commanding Solomon and giving him a covenant with Solomon, saying, if you do like your father David who loved me, there's been none like him who've loved me. And you look at that, what he's saying about David, and you go, whoa, this is a guy that was a murderer. This is a guy that was the adulterer. This is a guy that put one of his mighty men up on the front lines without any support to die. He basically executed him up there. And this is the guy that God says is all in? Yeah, because David wanted to be all in. He recognized that any time God brought accountability to him, what did he do? You go back and look at all the times that David was challenged after he did something wrong and look at how he responded. You see, God's people aren't perfect. But there's an allegiance there and an understanding that when it's pointed out to them that they've blown it, they repent. Amen. And there's this constant repentance, this all-in mentality. That's who that first group of people is that he's talking to. Hebrew people, Jewish people who are all in. Not perfect, but they're all in. And I want to give you a couple of passages for, to bring it out. Chapter 6, verse 10. <clears throat> For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints. He's talking to people who are serving Him. 
when he's talking about them. Verse uh, uh, chapter 10, verse 32. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Dave, has your pop property ever been plundered for Jesus? Only by my kids. Yeah. <laughs> but not because of Jesus. Because of something they wanted. John Monger comes to mind over in Nepal and Bhutan. John was a son of a wealthy man in Bhutan. And when he trusted Christ, he was thrown in prison. And they told him, you deny Jesus, you can walk free. You can walk into your dad's inheritance and have all this stuff. He would not renounce Christ because he knew what these people knew, that they had a better possession and an abiding one. One that was eternal, not one just for here and now. What if the police came to your house tomorrow and said, you know what, you're being evicted and we're taking this over because you're a Jesus lover. Would you still be a Jesus lover? Because a lot of people on this side of that equation would say yes. But you really have to ask yourself, am I all in? If I'm not all in now, how in the world would I be all in then? Yeah, I think so too. And we're starting to see some of it in the marketplace. You get penalized in some marketplaces for being... Look, look. We, Brad and I were just talking the other day about the, the guy who plays for the Saints. Now, I know he's not supposed to wear uh, uh, a, a marketing thing, but it said man of God. That's all it said. That wasn't advertising for anybody. It just said man of God. Underneath his helmet, he took his helmet off on the sideline. And he gets fined for it. But he said, I don't care. You know, I don't care. That's fine. And, and, and so the, the thing is for us, we really don't have a Christianity that cost us a whole lot yet. Now, it could because we choose not to do bad things or we choose to be honest. It has some inherent cost there. But I'm talking about being penalized simply because you love Jesus where you don't uh, get advanced in your career, maybe. Maybe you've experienced that. These people were being shunned not only by the Romans, but their own community of faith. And Because thousands of years go by and they say, last time we deviated from God, we got in a lot of trouble. So they didn't want to deviate. So you understand the predicament they were in. So this letter is written to them to encourage them. In chapter 5, it says... <laughs> For through, I mean, for through, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. They were wavering between rituals and Christ. They were living like infants instead of maturing believers. Do we struggle with that? 
So this ought to be a good letter for us to work through. Christ is better than anything. Do you really buy into that? Do you really believe that Christ is supreme? Well, the second group was Jewish people who believed the facts about Jesus. They actually believed in their head, yes, He could be Messiah, but not in their heart. It didn't affect their actions. They weren't all in. And by definition of this book, they weren't believers. They were enlightened. You know, and and some of us have heard people say, uh, I've heard lots of different people say, you know, if it's just in your head and not in your heart, it's not real. You know, and that's why people say, ask Jesus into your heart. You don't ask Jesus into your heart. Nowhere in Scripture do you see that formula. That's something that we created to try, I think, to get people to say, hey, we want it to affect the core of who we are. That's what it, that's what it should do. The fact that He's Messiah because He's Creator and He's done all this stuff. But there were people who believed in the facts there, just like the other group, but they weren't all in. And by definition, if you're not all in, you're not really His. And you go, whoa, 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 step back for a second, Doug. That means, I, what do I got to stand on a street corner with a Bible? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if Jesus is Messiah, He is who He said He is, and He's King, that means if He's your King, then He's your King. And you're obeying. Because when you disobey, you are spreading Satan's kingdom instead of his kingdom. And he calls us, he said, when he taught the disciples to pray, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means you're hallowing the name of God when you live your life. Your your goal is to hallow the name of God as you go about. When people see you... They see a representative of the Most High God, a servant of the Most High God. Thy kingdom come. And what that means is a king's place was not geographical, remember. It was where his will was being obeyed. These people could have cared less about obeying his will. These people were the people that First John talks about. They practice habitually sin because they don't care that God's king. He's not king in their life. That's who this second group is. Let me give you a couple of verses just to point out. We're going to hit them later too. But this is just introduction. Chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable... And every transgression or disobedience received a fair or just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In other words, if we've been given this message of Jesus being Messiah, and we've received the message here, but we ignore it with the way it affects our life, what hope is there for us? There's none. Chapter 6 For it is impossible in the case, this is chapter 6, verse 4. 
It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. And that is not saved. That is people who have been, they've just received the word, okay? Who have tasted the heavenly gift. And they've shared in the Holy Spirit. Not that the Holy Spirit has been in them, but the Holy Spirit revealed to them at that moment that Jesus was Messiah. And they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. In other words, if you've been given the gospel message and and you get the Messiah, He is the Messiah, you grasp it, but you say, you know what? I don't care in the way I live my life. Yes, it's good. And guys, we have churches full of these people today. Bible studies full of these people today who say, yes, I know He died on a cross. Yes, I've prayed to receive Him. But their lives have never been changed, not one iota from that knowledge. That's who this group is. They're not believers. No change, no belief. Because belief always produces change. Always. Amen. It will always produce change. Chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And what the writer's saying here is he's saying, Listen, if you go on sinning, there's no sacrifice for you. If, that's, if, if you want to live the way of the world, you want to honor Satan, you want to let him have control, he's your king, there's no sacrifice for you. And there's going to be fire waiting. There's going to be judgment waiting. This is a warning to that second group of people. Also in ch- uh, chapter 10, verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he, is, he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Those are strong words of warning. And they're to this group of people. You know who this group of people was? In, cha- in John chapter 12, verse 42, it says there were a group of people who believed but they dared not confess out of fear of the, the religious leaders. So, did they really believe? Did they really believe? Because if you really believe what Jesus said, when what did He say? He said, don't fear the one who can hurt your body. Fear the one who can cast you into everlasting torment. That's who we should fear. If you fear Him... You don't fear them. If you fear them, you don't fear Him. That's the way it works. This group of people, this is not talking about a momentary lapse. This is talking about a pattern of unbelief, a pattern of disobedience, a pattern of deliberate sinning. That's that group. The third group is Jewish people who were unbelieving and not convinced. Basically, this was the nation of Israel. The majority of them at that time 
were unconvinced and they didn't believe. So you have two groups that are going to be referenced at different times in this letter. But the primary flow is to the believers who are struggling and they're trying to conflate and bring Jewish rituals back into what they're doing. And that's why you see this flow. If you can get this, this is kind of the flow of the book. He starts off with angels. Christ is superior to angels. And we'll see that in just a second. Then he says Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior to Aaron. Christ is superior to Melchizedek. Christ is superior to the sacrificial system. He's uh, superior to the people who had faith that was great. His is always greater. Christ is superior, period. Amen. Now when we think about Christ and we think about Him, do we really think about how superior He is or do we still try to conflate things in our own life to help Him? To make life easier for us. We, we want to make life easier for ourselves by conflating things to make us not so abrasive to the world around us because we believe that he's superior. Hence, in our culture, we have this multicultural view of, you know what, there's many ways to God. There's many ways. Jesus is just one way. And sometimes I've seen people compromise that. I've seen people compromise it with, with other things in our culture where they, they don't want to have this view of this word being my authority because it makes people uncomfortable. Jesus has to be the overarching relationship over every other relationship we have. If he's not, we're in sin. Period. Doesn't matter if it's your kids, your wife, your bank account, your job. Jesus has to be the supreme relationship in every aspect of our life. Now, that doesn't mean you just walk around with a Bible and all you do is read 24-7. What it means is that you operate under that relationship where He is king in your life. And so if... Greg, he puts something on your heart to do as you're reading or as you sense a, a chaotic moment somewhere. There's chaos that you can bring peace to. And you go, you sense that nudging by the Spirit of God. And you go, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. You've just given an inch to the enemy. You've just given an inch to the enemy. Instead of taking it from the enemy and putting peace in there on behalf of God, being a standing stone, a kingdom of priests, we've just given it to the enemy. I had something happen this morning. I, I'm not going to go into great detail about it, but God put it on my heart. He nudged me this morning to do something. And in light of some stuff that I shared earlier, I was sitting there and I was, I was doing what he was doing, but I wasn't all in. I was holding back. Immediately, he brought Sapphira and Ananias to mind of Acts chapter 5. Immediately. It was like, it, it was like right in front of me. Are you going to be like Ananias? Are you going to be like Sapphira? Are you not going to trust me? You, you want to give them part of this? 
I was reminded of a story that I heard not too long ago in India. There was this poor pauper in India. And he was begging on the side of the road, always praying, always praying, wanting somebody to help him. He had 12 little grains of rice. 12. And there's this Maharaja comes by, this prince comes by on this elephant. And he's begging from the side of the road. He's begging, please help me, help me. So the prince gets down and he comes over there. And he talks to this beggar and he says, hey, what can I do for you? The beggar says, oh, I need money. I need help to buy food. This is all I have. And he shows him 12 grains of rice. That's all he had. And the the prince said, would you give me some of your rice? And the beggar kind of thought for a second. And he picked out six pieces and he gave him half. The prince took his six grains of rice, went back to his elephant that he was riding on, got something out of the satchel and came back and gave him six gold coins. The prince got on his elephant and rode away and the beggar thought, oh, I should have given him all of my grains of rice. That popped into my head too. So often we hold back because we're not all in. We somehow think that if we can manage these resources and hold on to them, and God has the cattle on a thousand hills. He wants us to participate with Him in so many different ways. But guys, more importantly, He wants us to be all in when He nudges us with our wife, when He nudges us with our kids, when He nudges us with our coworkers. Are we willing to let Him be supreme in our life? That's what this letter's to, to help these people understand that. In this third group, chapter 9 says, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that's talking about Christ, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, to purify our conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. He did not purify us to just bask in that purification or to just bask in the family of God. It's to go serve Him. He goes on in verse 27 of chapter 9, And just as it was appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Guys, let me ask you a question. If you are an all-in believer, you're there, you are in the family of God, do you ever have to fear judgment in the wrath of God? No. No. 
So he's not talking to believers in that verse. He's talking to the third group, possibly the second group. He's talking to people who aren't there, who are saying, no, you know what? I don't even care about it. Jesus is God's Son. And He says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaim His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor their words whose voice is not heard. God spoke through creation to His people. And then He spoke through prophets. And now in these last days, He's spoken through His Son. The question is, what are we doing with Him? What are we doing with what He said? Jesus came to teach what nobody was really getting. They were trying to get it and they kept faltering. And so He goes, okay, I'm going to come down there. God came in the presence of His Son and really explained the law. This is what it looks like to live. What did He do? Who did Jesus spend His time with? So why don't we? He was with sinful people, sick people, hurting people. We come to church every week all over the world and get fed what we should do and then we go out and then we make it optional to whether we do it or not. That's not very kingly in our life. It's not allowing Jesus to be king in our life. He spoke through Him. He's the creator of the world. Do you realize that at any moment, you know, I read an article the other day, they're worried about some meteor that could pop into earth. Could you imagine living every day wondering if a meteor is just going to die, or bring us death to everything that we know and that exists? There are people that walk around fearful of that. John 1.3, 1 Corinthians 8.6, and Romans 11.8 all say basically the same thing. That it's through Him that the world is created and held together. Amen. And do you know what? I love Him. Amen. And He loves me. Amen. So I know that I'm safe. I'm, I'm, I'm in the safest place I can be when I'm in the middle of His will. When I'm doing what He wants. So when He nudges me, because I'll just, tell, I'll just be really candid, I was not planning on going to India this fall. But when my brother calls and says, hey, will you bring money? Can you help us? How do, how do you say no? It's not like tons of people are going over there doing stuff. They're not. Brad's been there. It's not fun. David, you've been over to India. 
It's a terrible place. And that's where they are shining as bright lights to a hurting world. I'm just telling you, the supremacy of Christ is so key for us, guys. And that's what this whole book is about. Is He supreme? He offered a permanent sacrifice. The priest would come in and they, they would just give a sacrifice every year. He did one and went and sat down at the Father's right hand because it was done. No more sacrifices. Aren't you glad that we don't have to go get a sheep and have to take it to Jerusalem every year? I'm glad. Amen. Can you imagine that? Hauling a sheep over there on a 747 or an uh, Airbus A300? Because you had to go there to do it. He's eternal. All the other priests died, not Jesus. He was resurrected. And He's perfect, guys. So here's, here's the question that I want to close with, and then I'm going to open it up for questions or comments. Which member of the audience that this was written to am I? Am I, am I the all-in believer who just struggles and I conflate things and I try to bring things together to keep the heat off? Am I just struggling a little bit? Am I that guy? Or am I the second guy? I'm the guy that I've known it up here a long time, but just not all in yet. I'm just not there. I want to be, but I'm just not there. Because it just really, you know, at the end of the day, it's just not that high on my priority list. Or am I the third guy? I'm not even convinced that he's really real the messiah i mean i don't know what you need um if you go on a trip to israel with me i i don't know how you could come back from that and not see the evidence that's so there even this book do you realize nothing historically or archaeologically has ever disproved one thing in the bible in thousands of years i've been trying to do it Nothing. It's either neutral or it affirms everything that's in here. So the evidence is there. So which member of the audience are we? I think that's the question we got to walk away from here wrestling with and then let God deal with our heart on it. And listen, I share all this stuff because I'm preaching to myself. I told you where I struggled this morning, right? I was sitting there struggling this morning. And, and God put it on my heart to do something, and I'm sitting there arguing with Him about it and like trying to minimize my participation in what He wanted me to do. And, uh, and it, just, it was just a reminder to me that, you know what? It's a struggle. The enemy wants you to minimize His superiority. The enemy wants you to minimize His leadership over you. The question is, what are you going to do? It's going to be a, a great book. It'll be encouraging for you. I, I, hope, I hope that you're not listening to this today and going, holy cow, I just felt like I was in a fist fight. Uh, I don't know anything worthwhile in life that's ever been easy for me. Nothing. Nothing. We get to do this. We get to tell people this. And it's time for us to stop feeling apologetic about it. We should be excited that we get to shine a light in the dark chaos of people's world. We should be excited. 
I, I, I really feel like, guys, that, that God is doing something, and I want you to be a part of it. Because we're a group here. We're a community. Dave, would you close our time in prayer?